Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AI Innovators Podcast. I'm Rob May. I'm the CEO of Nova, and I'm here with my co-founder of the AI Innovators community, Abi Yadev. Hi, everyone. Excited to be here. We do this podcast to interview lots of people that are doing innovative things in the AI community, whether they're academics, entrepreneurs, technical people, coming out of big companies, whatever. We're just trying to share knowledge and spread wisdom and all that kind of stuff. Our guest today is one of the founders of Lovelace Studios, which is named after the programmer Ada Lovelace. I have some really interesting stuff that they're doing. So we're very excited to have Kayla Kamali. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, hey, Rob. Hey, Abby. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I want to jump in and talk a little bit about it. You guys are using AI to build generative worlds for video games. And I think most of us, when we think about worlds and video games these days, we think about Roblox. So can you talk about what Lovelace is doing and sort of compared to what the Roblox experience is like today so that we have sort of an anchor point to understand uh, how AI is sort of changing that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Roblox is a great example for that. They are kind of like the the quintessential, like the stereotype when people think about user-generated content, which is players being the content creators, the ones building the worlds and creating and creating the spaces and, and game experiences. And in that way, we are similar to Roblox. And how we differ is how those worlds interact with one another. Uh, if you're familiar with you know Web3 and blockchain, you hear a lot about interoperability where different platforms can connect to one another, shared avatars, shared resources, uh, shared crypto. But in our world, we call it kind of an intraoperable. It's like a massive online platform where creators can go in and we abstract a lot of the experiences for them using generative AI. That comes in the form of prompts to worlds. They can just speak a world and we use you know prompt engineering to break that down. There's language models for characters that they can interact with that have memory and, and parameters according to the world they create. And there's asset creation. So really high fidelity textures that come in and can wrap around meshes in a way that you know, you're, you're creating what is like sub, substance wise, a, a truly immersive world that is generated on the fly, which you, you don't tend to see in a lot of, you know, gaming experiences. It's tends to be pre-cooked, pre-packaged and, you know, what you play is what you get. Whereas in what we're trying to do is bring up a suite of AI tools for the players. We're abstracting it out so that it's approachable for just about anyone. It's not code-based. It's, you know, UI experiences, voice-based commands, and just kind of like a lock-in system where you can build that up. So in your pitch deck about the company, you talk about going from a prompt to a world in 10 seconds. And what that means if people, I think most people know what prompting is in a chat GPT world. But if you don't, I assume that means I can describe sort of what I want in a world and you guys will create it in a matter of 10 seconds. So is that true? And if so, talk about the, the technology that goes into making that happen and, and, and some of the maybe challenges that are involved with that. Yeah, that was one of the first features we released. Uh, we had an early alpha, or sorry, a early teaser trailer come out May 8th. And that showed, yeah, just you say, I want alien winter forest, mushroom, Alice in Wonderland world, Jurassic Viking tower, medieval space, kind of any world or, or idea that people have, they can type into that system. And I mentioned prompt engineering. So that comes into play where we are breaking the worlds down into their constituent components. There is a style with the world, you know, certain post-processing effects, you could be underwater, you can, you know, 
be looking through certain like vintage filters. There's, you know, time periods, uh, you can be futuristic style, which, you know, depends on the layout of the structure. Is it urban? Is it rural? There's climates, there's geologies and biomes. These worlds are survival craft. You come in and you're breaking down the components, you're building up recipes. So we realize that every element of this could be easily abstracted and, you know, you can add a lot of flavor to it. You can have descriptions for the items that you build in these worlds, you know, and every time somebody goes in and they give a prompt for a world, it's just building up off of itself where we're getting a, you know, a, a more comprehensive understanding of what players are interested in and what kinds of trends you can see. And so, you know, as, as it scales on the consumer side, there's going to be a lot of opportunities to, to kind of improve it and make it, you know, even more airtight and like, you know, get closer and closer to exactly what they want. But I think a lot of the fun is also in how they can re-roll it, how they can explore in different options and maybe even modify their own like descriptions. Let's say, you know, you're in an Alice in Wonderland world and you have, say, the hookah from that the caterpillar uses and it, you know, the description for it is in iambic pentameter or stanza or verse or Mahabharata, like whatever, whatever they imagine, we can kind of open up opportunities in a, in a really unique and creative way. And so how, how broad can users go with this? I mean, can I put almost anything, any object or any kind of world, or do you set specific parameters on that of what we're allowed to do? At this stage, it's pretty broad in terms of the world generation, but we are working with a few partners that, because this tech is, is really quite new, there's, there's a lot of business to business companies out there that are doing these texture generations where you, they even do like the UV wrapping which UV not ultraviolet, UV like, you know, X, Y coordinate. So it's like if you just were to take a teddy bear and flatten it out on a surface into a 2D teddy bear and draw on top of it, then that's how you would like map and wrap the the textures on top of it in a way that looks appropriate to to the roughness or the surface of it. And, you know, that's the kind of detail that that we're working with in terms of our partners. Polyhive does that. And Sloyd AI is a Norwegian company that does what's called a parametric base engine. That is taking, let's say, if you have a vector or a mesh, for example, like a 3D asset, it doesn't have just a immutable state. It doesn't have like a certain height, a certain orientation or angle. You can you can make it round, you can make it square and, and modify. And, and if you think of you know what an object is in a 3D world, it's just a combination of these objects. So in a very performant way, not even using AI, it's, it's just algorithmic. You can really powerfully get a lot in terms of you know what the world experiences could look like and, and make it truly transformative. Interesting. So Kayla, earlier in your career, you were a robotics programmer. How did yeah. that shape your view on video game worlds? Like, are there parallels or was it an entirely different type of work? Talk something. Yeah. So I would say video games actually shaped my <laughs> my robotics experience. So so I grew up in kind of a, a sad story, but my mom passed away when I was 13 from, from a decade of, of breast cancer. And at that time I had, I fell into a lot of different, what people might call escapisms, but I would say periods of, of finding agency through video games. I could play The Sims, I could, you know, Spyro, Twisted Metal, Final Fantasies, Roller Coaster Tycoon, Ultimate Bass Fishing too. It was really quite all over the place, but it allowed me to find a, a space where I could sort of be my own hero and find a kind of a hidden power in myself where I had no agency. And what I, I found, I leaned towards like the really complicated systems later on, like, you know, civilization and, and the depth of architecture and, and, and 
you know, pipelining that is needed to go not only deep in terms of your civic trees, but also broad in terms of the different permutations that one can explore and, and subclass into. Surprisingly, in robotics, that's very similar, especially with what I was doing, which was warehouse fulfillment. So the company I worked for was called Six River Systems, and we called ourselves Systems Not Robotics because there was a lot that has to go into warehouse logistics, which is, you know, getting, you know, you get something on Amazon and then in two days it gets delivered. There's these giant 650,000 square foot warehouses. Robots have to, you know, snake sort essentially in a very efficient way through these aisles. Uh, I worked on the perception team, which handled computer vision and, you know, how it could avoid obstacles and how it's dealing with real-time telemetry data and how that syncs and inter- interacts with one another. And if you look at it, you know, as, as you know, gam- gamification is everywhere nowadays. It, it's all just a, a different sort of game system. And in particular now with, with Unreal and this, you know, high rendering, high fidelity, 8K texture, photorealistic components that we're dealing with, performance is exceedingly important as well. And our robots were running on, on TX2s, so not, not very powerful, but you know you had to you worked with what you got. You ran inference in more efficient and, and deeper systems. So, so definitely a lot of parallels in, in ways you would not expect. Now, you are the first guest that we've had on the podcast that's dealing with AI tools that may be used by kids. And you know I think video games and social media sort of have this thing in common where there's a lot of concern about kids using them. There's a question of when's the right age to put them on and and everything else. And so I'm curious how you think about, you know, do you need guardrails in this scenario? How do you think about that in a generative AI world? How do you make sure the kids don't generate things that their parents wouldn't want them to generate or things that might harm other kids or, you know, be bad for society or whatever? Like I just did, this is a, a really big and open area. So what, how have you thought about your approach there? Yeah, it's a fantastic question and one that's really important. And when it comes to generative technology, it's a very hard question to answer. Honestly, there's companies that can do what's called whitelisting. You know, they they only allow certain components to come in because they're categorizing them. Like you can only, you know, you ask a language model to only select out of a out of a certain number of options. And that's what we're using with our prompt engineering, you know, uh, for the for the geologies, the biomes and the climates and the atmosphere, but you know, with the with the language models trying to build their own narratives, it's not something you can really censor on your own. And, you know, as a company, we are very open to partnerships because this is a suite of technologies. We're not trying to build everything from scratch from the ground up. So Modulate is a company that that we've worked with. My co-founder has worked, you know, with them, with that whole team previously. And they have a lot of very performant, like low latency responses to to at least the text components that come into play and and what people would be exposed to. If we start expanding where the realms are, you know, the 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 creators are the ones who can sort of gate who comes in and who who doesn't come into the realms. We can ask them to set certain age restrictions if they think it wouldn't be appropriate. And we can also run some automation tools to do, you know, not not to say auditing, trying to stay as far away from anything sounding Orwellian as possible, but you know what I mean, just uh, making sure, <laughs> yeah, that it's that it's all it's all good to go for the kids. Yeah, no, I've been an investor in Modulate for five or six years now, and and have watched them, and it's a, you know, it's definitely a tough spot, not just because the technology is changing all the time, and then you know the breadth of what people think is. 
age appropriate for somebody who's like, like, I think we kind of all agree on what's age appropriate for like a six year old. And then once you're 18, you can do whatever. But there's a lot of disagreement around what's age appropriate for, say, someone who's 12 or 13 or 14. You know, and a lot of it depends on the kid and the, you know, maybe the parent and all that. So it's good that you guys are getting ahead of this. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about the quality of the generative AI things that you can create and, and the, the worlds that you can create and the items you can create in these worlds. My experience with tools like Midjourney and Stable Diffusion and Dolly 2, for example, is they're super cool, but sometimes you get really random weird stuff out even when you have a really clear prompt and you describe it well. And then sometimes even when cool stuff comes out, it's not the kind of thing that I anticipated or envisioned. And so do you see that as being a a problem for you on the generative AI side where like I'm a video gamer and I'm like, oh, I want to create a world. I have this idea in my head of what it should be. And it it is part of the experience like, surprise, you're just going to, you're going to get something that's related, but maybe not what you expected or, or there are tools to help me control it better or prompt better to get what I want. But like, how, how are you, how are you taking the, the, the randomness, the stochastic pieces of generative AI and sort of like making sure that users get out something that they expect? Yeah. A great question again. So the appeal with these generative components is kind of that randomness. It's that scrappy, you know, what, what are you going to get sort of, sort of dice roll. And we embrace that in a lot of ways. You can see that technology becoming a lot more popular. There's a, there's a sort of roughness that's, that's becoming a bit of a norm, which, which I'm liking to see this, this kind of social trend, you know, with, with the latest tiers of the kingdom Delta game, that was, that's one of the scrappiest. It's, it's not, it's not linear. It's completely open and people love it. They say it's one of the best, you know, one of the best Zelda games, if not one of the, one of the best games that, that, that has come out. And, but of course, you, you, as you say, if we can't moderate, validate in, an, in a good enough way, what is coming in and how it is consistent with what they're ac- actually asking for, then we're not, you know, we're also not giving them anything. So what we do is we have different relevancy scores and series of descriptions that is a growing, you know, it's a growing database of, you know, just, just text associations that have sort of, we're pre-vetting on, you know, a series of commands that we expect players to, to start with, you know. If you have a Viking world, what was uh, what would a Viking world look like? You know, it's it might be medieval or it might be Scandinavian, like certain certain descriptors. It, it might be like like ocean based or maritime. It's just a growing number of tags, and you see this a lot with game tools like assets that that Unreal uses. It's it's everything. Everything just has a as a base set of metadata associated with it, and we're just essentially taking that and allowing it to be relevancy kind of not thresholded, but, but just random, but certainly in line with what, what it is that they're, that they're looking to, to build. So how will you deal with celebrities or branded items or famous things that are going to be in here? Are you going to rely on the foundation models that you use to filter those? Or are you going to filter them? So if I'm like, I, I want to look like, you know, Taylor Swift and I want to be wearing some, you know, Nikes and a Supreme hat and things like that. I mean, or, or those opportunities for those people to sponsor the video games or, or something like that. Like, how, how are you thinking about things like that that people might put in? Yeah, copyright issues and IP protection is a big challenge kind of across the entire sphere. And there's you know the similarity of parity law where you know the diffusion model that midjourney is trained off of it uses all of that data that other large companies have and it's a big question it's a hard one to answer i can't give you 
you know, a, a complete answer for it other than, you know, what I'd mentioned before, where we can have this series of auditing tools, just these, these kind of demons that run through the, the, the platforms run through the spaces, double checks and like, like check if there is a quantifiable relationship to like, if you can break it down pixel by pixel and like nearest neighbor checks, like, is this too close? Is this like a, is this Harry Potter or is this, you know, just some wizarding world where they, they use wands in this big castle. And it's getting kind of interesting because, you know, I think a lot on like the simulacra and simulation, like the, the idea that everything is a copy of a copy of a copy. And it's getting to that, like, this is almost the, the end of it all. Like AI having been trained off of all of this, what is real anymore? What can anything really truly be unique? I, I think in a, in a fascinating way, these sorts of, these hallucinations, these fabrications and these, uh, you know, unexpected noise elements that come in just like a biological mutation are going to actually give way to a lot of creative and, and unique individuality in the, in the users more so than we've seen in a lot of other spaces. And it's sort of paradoxical that it, that it might be that way, but it's kind of our dream to, to bring that to people as soon as possible. And so it's a, it's a bit rough. It's a bit, you know, risky, but I think that's, that's where all of our excitement really lies is, is just getting this to people as soon as possible and seeing, you know, user generated content with Roblox. People made pet games. They make, you know, more battle Royale styles and first person shooters, but once you start adding this kind of this more feral component, I think there's a lot of opportunities that that the players could just we're just going to see some really surprising out, outcroppings. Sorry, I know that didn't answer the question before, but it's interesting. Yeah. So moving on, what technology problem are you not working on at Lovelace that you wish someone would solve to make your life easier? The Language models are expensive. They will get expensive. The whole basis of the world is, you know, players will create. They can go into the starting game mode, which is just a random space. It's not very expensive to generate those worlds. But once you add characters and you have a lot of memory-based behaviors and personalities, you know, every character we have has hopes, dreams, fears, motivations, and, a, you know, a, a personal kind of style and, and history that's related to the world. It gets expensive uh, because we want it to be so immersive and exciting. Unfortunately, there's a lot of companies that are that are doing this. There's a ton of there's a ton of business facing companies that are building these language models, and there's actually consumer ones. We've been talking with some folks at MIT. There's a potential for a partnership there, and that they're doing a startup that is basically you know has to be consumer facing because it's integrated deeply with the parameters, but it's an order of magnitude faster and cheaper than any other language model. And I guess I won't go into the technology that they use, but it's I think there's going to be some 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 ways to make this a lot cheaper and once you can do that then we can start scaling that out to users and start building these really cool role playing systems that that really haven't been seen before. So it's, it's a wild time. <laughs> so the one thing that I like to end on as a question is you've obviously had some career success. You're founding a company now and doing cool stuff. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs and, you know, people that want to become entrepreneurs someday that listen to the podcast. So I'm always curious, what's one piece of life advice that you've learned along the way, something you experienced, a mentor taught you, something you've read, whatever, just one piece of advice that you like to pass on to the listeners? Always being aware of of doing your focus, your end goal, what your dream is, and 
never straying from that because excitement and drive and passion is what makes a startup bigger and more powerful in very unique ways than than other big companies, in our case, AAA studios. And if you're able to stay focused and temper your passion with scope and breaking it down into achievable components. I think from the get-go, that is a very important component. And another com- another thing is just trying to get to market as soon as possible. Business B2B or B2C, you want to start getting that user testing and user feedback as quickly as you can. And and you know, with what we're trying to do, it's a big project. It's a the idea of it, you know, is 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 a is kind of a zero to one size challenge. But if we focus on our role-playing communities, if we focus on this sort of, you know, day zero, you build a world and it's a survival craft style world and we will iteratively expose these elements, then we can start going to market earlier. So with our with our release coming up, that's what we're trying to do is just, you know, get back and and hear from those users as soon as possible. Yeah, go to market quick, but also don't lose your dream, essentially. Yeah. So Kayla, if people listening are like, this sounds awesome, I want to try it out, where should they go or what should they do? Is this something I download? Do I go to a website? What are my options? Yes. So end of September, we are having our release coming out very soon and that will be a closed alpha. You can join our Discord, which is linked to our website. Our website is lovelacestudio.com. That is the best way to do it. Otherwise, always reach out on LinkedIn. Always happy to talk with more folks. But yeah, thanks. Well, that was super interesting. Best of luck with your launch. And uh, Kayla, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Avi. Thanks. Uh, this has been great. Thank you. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Kayla.